Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. What a difference a century makes. 100 years ago, World War I had the Champagne region in its grip. The far-reaching economic ramifications of such a devastating war are really difficult to comprehend today. The trenches on the Western Front lanced Champagne on the Northeast side and exposed, in particular, the city of Rance to a near-constant barrage of artillery for a duration of about three years. This kind of disruption upset life on the most fundamental levels. There was less time to manage the vineyards due to consistent heavy shelling, and also because much of the labor force had been killed, either away at war or by shrapnel or shelling in the vineyards. And this led to a shortage of harvestable crop, despite the quality of the vintage, which was very good in 1914, 1916, and 1917 and less scrapes translated into less champagne, which meant less sellable product. The shelling and rants also destroyed the winemaking buildings, the cathedral, and most of the homes in the region. Champagne producers lost their crops, their workforce, and when some of the caves collapsed under heavy shelling, some lost their reserve stock. Reserve stock also fell prey to soldiers on both sides, many who helped themselves to the wine. The German front also had a pretty formidable weapon. They had machine guns, and they held their border. The machine gun border put the soldiers fighting in the chalky, muddy trenches of Champagne at a great disadvantage. Some winemakers had to worry about things you'd never think you have to deal with in a vineyard. You had to go out in your vines and bury the dead who had fallen there. Under the intense shelling, many inhabitants moved underground and lived there, held school there, had their meals there, slept there, and mourned their constantly growing death toll there, and worried about cave-ins there. They also worried about how they would get by with the supply shortage they experienced. And it wasn't just a shortage in the wine. All the other stuff you need to make champagne was in shortage too. A bottle shortage due to glass blowers being killed, a shortage of packing crates, even shortages of the dosage sugar that you need, all caused the business to slow in the region. 
And even if they could still produce the same amounts of pre-war champagne, their markets had disappeared. The domestic market dried up overnight. Only two restaurants remained open in Paris, and they both closed early. Populace in the big cities dwindled as people left for safer areas. Orders from countries outside the war zone, they couldn't be filled. Blockades at export sites kept product from leaving France, and if a shipment did get to open sea, U-boats on both coasts posed a significant risk. The U-boats took down at least one ship with a pretty large champagne cargo on board. With all the destruction that Champagne experienced, in the vineyards, in the cities, among the population, the destruction of cultural icons and community, and the loss of current and reserve stock, it's really nothing short of extraordinary that in a century, the wine region has bounced back from such depressing circumstances to commanding the global sparkling market. The multi-generational families in Champagne today that carry the torch have a lot riding on their futures because they also honor their ancestors who made it through World War I. Keep listening to hear more from one winemaker whose family has persevered through centuries of ups and downs in Champagne. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Charles Philippinat of Philippinat on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. So you were born in Champagne. I was born in Champagne. I was born in Epanay, right in the middle of uh, Epanay, the capital of Champagne, in a clinic that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. It's been turned into a real estate agency. What was your childhood like? I was a very agitated and nervous and talkative child. I always got punished at school. My mother was from a family who had a uh, cork factory. They were in the cork business, making corks for champagne. My grandmother was uh, from Catalonia. She was Spanish. My grandfather was uh, running the French side of the business. My own father was a winemaker. He was from a champagne family, obviously. And for many years, for 27 years, he was the head wet maker at Moite Chandon. He did all the Dom Perignon from 49 through 76. Oh, okay. That's some good vintage. 66 is very good. 66 is one of my father's. What was he like? 
he was a pretty austere man. Uh, he believed in uh, work well done. Uh, he didn't drink that much, but he was very keen uh, about what he was doing. And uh, he, I think he had to be a boss. He had to uh, manage people in the cellar in such a large house such as Moëté Chandon. And that really was his job. Also, when he arrived there, he always told me uh, the winery was a big mess. So he tidied it up. Well, after the war, it's probably difficult. After the war, yes. Well, also, people were not paying too much attention to uh, cleanliness. So he brought in some more modern views about cleanliness and uh, more modern methods of enology as soon as the 50s. When did you decide that you also wanted to work in wine? Actually, I never decided I wanted to work in wine. It just happened. It just grew on me. When I was still studying, I was studying law. I uh, did a summer job as a trainee at Moëté Chandon, and I met with a man who needed an assistant in the export department. He liked me, he thought I could help him, and he hired me. And that's how it started. What was that experience like? I mean, you were there for several years. So I was there helping him in sales, or rather in the administration of sales, as far as I was concerned. And then two years after that, they sent me to the U.S. They sent me here in New York City uh, as a salesman. So I uh, walked the streets of New York uh, selling champagne, but also other wines, also cognac, also some Spanish wines, some Italian wines. Then after that, when I uh, came back to France, in 1990, they sent me back to school. So I took an MBA in France, in an international MBA in Seyad. And um, after that, they offered me several jobs. And I chose the job that they didn't think I'd be choosing. Uh, they offered me to work in uh, human resources. They offered me to go back into uh, the export department. And they offered me to go and work in the unological department with the head of unology uh, at Moëté Chandon. And that's what I chose. And that, that's when I really understood that I wanted it to be my career and I didn't want to go back into general management or legal management. So I started learning about wine. I participated in all the tastings, uh, into the blending of Moëté Chandon, of course, I was in contact all day uh, with the unologists. Uh, I shared the same desk as uh, Richard Geoffroy, who is now the head of unology at Moëté Chandon, for three years. We had very long talks together. Um, did he complain about I had, your I had father? a great time. I had a great time. Uh, no, because my father was, was not the head of unology anymore. At the time. <laughs> but they're like, oh, they're, I'm so glad we got that it, other guy. He was his successor. <laughs> and, just uh, Philippe Coulon and... Uh, and the head of um, the Moëté Chandon Unology, uh, Dominique Foulon. They were, they were very simple men. They had a very simple approach to Unology, even in such a large house, which uh, I learned a lot from. And eventually you decided to take another move. Well, I didn't really take another move. While I was in the uh, Unological department, I looked after the grape supplies. Um, in 1990, the former collective uh, negotiation of the champagne industry collapsed or was removed to be replaced with private contracts between the houses and the growers. I was in charge of that at Moëté Chandon. 
Moet Chandon at the time being the uh, still today being the largest buyer of grapes in all of Champagne. And I think I did a pretty good job at that because after a while, the general manager, the president of Moet Chandon of the time, asked me to come and work with him directly uh, and look after all the um, Champagne, local Champagne issues, all the interprofessional and local issues, all that had to do with uh, the growing area, the relationship with the other growers, everything institutional about Champagne. And where did you see your career taking you at that time? Where did you imagine you would end up? Well, I imagined perhaps I could uh, go even higher in general management at Moët Chandon. Yes, I uh, caressed that idea for a while. And then a few years after that, Moët Chandon changed hands. It stopped being a uh, family business and was taken over by uh, Bernard Arnault, the founder of the present LVMH group. And that's when I think... I was not the person that they wanted anymore because I was too much from Champagne, too much from the trade, too much with the tradition behind me and not enough of a marketer. So in, um, in 96, I asked to be sent to a more operational place and be given a more operational job and they sent me to Argentina. They sent me to Bodega Chandon, which is the uh, winery that uh, they own in Argentina, quite a large winery, making both sparkling wines and still wines. And I was the head of development there. I was the head of the new projects for a couple of years. That's a big change. It was a big change, but it was a, it was a lot of fun because it was more operational and it had to do with uh, devising new ranges of products, making new wines. I was particularly in charge of what was the, the initial stage of the Terrasas project, the still wines. But after two years, I felt I had to uh, do something else, but I still wanted to stay in Argentina. I quit, and I started working for the uh, Taillon Group, which is a big family-owned group of wineries in France, owning some uh, prestigious Bordeaux chateaux, and also the largest Bordeaux négociant, Gineste. They had entered a joint venture with some Argentine people at the time, and I was their, uh, their eye from France, locally in Argentina. Man on the ground. The man on the ground, exactly. So that lasted for about two years as well. And then the partners decided to split, and that's when I was asked by the owners of uh, Filippona Champagne, the new owners of Filippona Champagne, to come back to Champagne and run the winery. That was in 2000. That's probably a name you recognize, Filippona. Yes. And after having worked so many years for uh, other wineries and uh, having changed positions so many times, I settled in Filippona. And for the past 15 years, I've been looking after Filippona. And that 15 years corresponds to a lot of change of Filippona. Well, 15 years is um, nothing. Uh, 15 years is the time it took for the early changes to become noticeable. Um, when you put some wine in a bottle, if it's non-vintage, it will take four years until you release it, at least if you have any 
quality ambition. If you make a vintage wine, it will take six or seven years before you release it. And if you make a top prestige cuvee, or if you make a very ambitious uh, single vineyard champagne like we do with Claude de Guasse, it will take at least 10 years before we release it. So any change that you start implementing and testing will only be visible in the market after around 15 years, which is just happening now. The first moves that I took are only becoming visible now. And how do you feel about that? Well, I feel pleased because I can now see that the moves I took 10 or 15 years ago were the right ones. Um, it's a little frightening to uh, change things about a wine where you don't know what really will come out in the end. Because of course, we have genealogical knowledge and we already have some experience, but you cannot really know until it really happens. You need to see the results. Um, if you're a cook, you cook every day and you can see the results immediately. It's very difficult in a way because you have to cook every day and you have to cook several meals every day and you can't fail if you're working at the two or three star level. But if you fail one dish, one night, you can make it good the next day. Now with wine, you only make one wine a year or you make a range of wines every year. At Filippona we make 10 wines, we make 10 different wines, but we only make them once a year. And we only know the result after several years. It's actually a lot more difficult than cooking because you can only correct the bad moves. If you put too much salt, you can only correct that after four or five years when you find out you've done something wrong. So you'd better not do something wrong. That's why too much change in wine is not advisable. It's better to stick to tradition and go by little touches. What were some of the first changes you made? One of the first changes I made was never to use the second pressings again. Um, it was already almost the case in the two or three years before I arrived. But since I arrived, we never used a single drop of second pressings, not even of Chardonnay, as a matter of principle. Uh, because I believe that the second pressings are slightly greener, more herbaceous, and they don't age well. So because of that, I don't want them in the cuvées. That was one of the first moves. Another move very soon afterwards was to start using wooden barrels again, oak barrels again, to create complexity in the wine. Another move that we made that was an easy one, because it's quite an immediate one, was to lower the dosage on the wines, the sugar level on the wines. That's done at the time of disgorgement, and uh, is therefore something that happens at the end of the preparation of a cuvee and can be done quickly. Another thing that I did was to focus on the Pinot Noir grape. Because where we are, Aïe and Maroy sur it is the place where the best terroirs are for Pinot Noir. So I decided to focus on Pinot Noir. Wherever we had Pinot Meunier, we replaced it with Pinot Noir when the time was ripe. We didn't decide to uproot healthy vineyards, of course, but when the time was right. We uprooted them and uh, replaced them with Pinot Noir until now when we don't have any Pinot Meunier left in our own vineyards. Uh, by the same token, when buying grapes, I also let go of the uh, 
Pinot Meunier contracts and replaced them with some new Pinot Noir contracts with some growers that I knew that agreed to uh, start working with us. Because I wanted our style to be that of a Pinot Noir focused house. I wanted our style to be clear. Where we are is the best place for Pinot Noir because it's generally chalk in the soil, very calcareous, and it's generally south-facing slopes with some heat. And Pinot Noir is the varietal, is the kind of grape that needs more heat in Champagne compared to Pinot Meunier, which has a shorter cycle, and to Chardonnay, which is better when it's slightly fresher. With that oak change, you actually moved to some smaller barrels as well. Well, yes. That's the case for Claude de Guas. When I arrived, we were using no oak at all, except for Claude de Guas, and the oak was large foudre of uh, 15 hectoliters, 1,500 liters. These were old foudre. They were not very good, I think, so I got rid of them and replaced them with these small pièces, piece barrels of the Burgundian type, 228 liters, quite classical. How else does Clos de Guasse stand apart from the rest of the production? What are some of the other particularities of that place and how you make that wine? The winemaking is really the same. Everything we do to any of our wines is the same. There is no difference in, in the treatment to the grapes. The difference really comes from the terroir. It's, it's where the grapes come from. I was explaining just now about the chalk and the south-facing slopes. Claude de belongs to that area, but is even more extreme. It's like the epitome of the area. The slope is even more inclined, up to 45%. And because it is so inclined, it's very eroded. And because it's so eroded, there's almost no topsoil. So the vines go directly into the chalk directly into the calcareous soil. So it's the same as the rest, it's just more extreme. That's why it's more interesting. And with Clos de Guas, it's a single vineyard parcel that's walled, and you only use those grapes. Yes. But you also at the same time have Chardonnay, so you have Chardonnay and Pinot planted in that vineyard. Well, because we use only the grapes from that place, and because we still like to blend, and because it's always been blended, it's the tradition within Clos de Guas to blend it, there is Pinot Noir, about two-thirds, and Chardonnay, one-third, within the vineyard. Uh, the Pinot Noir is planted where it's steeper and hotter, and the Chardonnay is planted towards the east, where the slope is a little less pronounced and faces slightly more to the east, south-southeast instead of full south. And in both cases, it's a chalk subsoil and a chalk topsoil. Yes, yes. Always. It's quite homogeneous. So I think a lot of times when we think of planting Chardonnay versus Pinot Noir, we think of planting Chardonnay in chalk and then planting Pinot Noir where there's more clay. So how do they respond differently to that condition? Well, I don't think it applies to the best vineyards of Champagne because the best vineyards of Champagne are on clay. So good Pinot Noir in Champagne is also planted on clay. I think what, what you just mentioned uh, relates more to Burgundy, where uh, you will prefer the calcareous soils like in uh, Le Mont Rachet and plant Pinot Noir where it's slightly clayer. 
uh, the bottom of the slopes, and your Von Romanet or Moray Saint Denis. That's quite true. That's also one. Uh, what well, it is the reason why we don't really make red wine in Champagne, uh, because it'd be too hard. Because with the calcareous soil, the wines would be too acid, too hard. But that's exactly what we need as a base for sparkling wine. That's exactly how we make a good sparkling wine. And you've been using some burgundy material when you plant Pinot. Yes, that's true. Because Claude de Guasse is somewhat extreme, and because we want our style to be very Pinot Noir oriented and have all the aromas from good, ripe Pinot Noir, uh, we decided to uh, stay away from the usual champagne clones or even selections and for the past 10 or 12 years have only planted muscle selections from burgundy because the burgundian selections are oriented towards red wine production and therefore are more aromatic and also have a little more color and have lesser yields which helps to control the vigor of, of the vines without too much effort and uh, makes the management of quality easier. So you were looking for lower yields and a little bit more pigmentation and some more... We're not really looking for the pigmentation, it just comes with it. And um, if you look at our wines in the glass, you will see that our wines are, are slightly intense in color. They are slightly yellower than usual champagnes because we use ripe Pinot Noir. And because we don't adjust the color, we never adjust the color. We never do anything to the color. So do you pick the Pinot and the Chardonnay at the same time, or is it a little different? It really depends on the place where they grow. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay have about the same cycle. They, Chardonnay might be a little bit shorter by one or two days. And the Pinot Meunier, which we don't use anymore, has a shorter cycle. In the same place... Under the same conditions, you'd normally pick the Chardonnay first, then the Pinot Noir. In Claude de Guas, because the Pinot Noir is planted in the more extreme areas, we normally start with the uh, Pinot Noir and then continue with Chardonnay two or three days afterwards. And do you ferment them together or are they separate? No, they're separate. They're separate. We, we keep the individual wines as separate as possible for as long as possible so we have more flexibility when blending. You can do a better selection. Because once you've blended the wines, if you've already blended the grapes or if, or if you've already blended the musts, there is no choice anymore. You've blended them and that's it. If you make the wine separately, then uh, you always retain the possibility of blending differently or not blending what possibly would be inferior. And how have you found the character of Claude de Guas to be? I mean, if I were to speak about this wine, what should I understand about it as a wine? I think you need to taste uh, Claude de Guas. And I think you need to taste Claude de Guas really like a wine. Uh, it's not a wine for tasting. It's not a wine for contests. It's a wine for eating. It's a wine for taking to the table. I, I often compare it to red wines, even though it's a white wine. And I tell people, just use it like you would a red wine, like you would a red burgundy, because it has sufficient body, sufficient power to withstand almost any uh, dish that, that a, a red burgundy would withstand. That's the most important thing to understand. 
Now, when analyzing the wine itself, well, it has the, the, the characters, the extreme characters that are translated by our winemaking from the vineyard into the bottle. Uh, Claude de Guas is both very intense, very fruity, and very mineral, and very stony, and very crisp. Even though it's not very, very acid, because it's so ripe, the acidity is relatively low for champagne. Um, that's the reason why we don't perform the malolactic fermentation on it. So we have even more freshness in it, or we retain some of the freshness that otherwise would be lost. But it's not really the reason why it's so fresh. The reason why it's so fresh and the reason why it's so long-lived is simply where it grows. It's the chalkiness of the soil. It's the very calcareous soil that does it. It's very surprising when we do tastings, vertical tastings of old vintages, how well they keep. Even though they have low acid, even though they were very ripe, even though they are quite intense, even though people would normally think that they'd go down relatively quickly, they don't. They stay forever. I've tasted Claude de Guas from the 30s, from the 40s, from the 50s. And um, when the cork has resisted, they're, they're pristine, they're wonderful, they're wonderfully fresh. So that being said, you release it 10 years after the vintage, but when should consumers really start to think about drinking it? I mean, what's a good window for you? I think the best, well, there are two windows, I think, really. There's a first window, which is not immediately, which is after one or two years post-disgorgement, when the wine has recuperated from the disgorgement shock, and when the aging of the wine is not oxidative anymore. I'll explain that. When the wine is in the cellar, it's inside the bottle, with the lees in it, and it's not been opened since it was bottled, and after it was bottled, it fermented in the bottle. And therefore, there is no oxygen anymore because it was all consumed and metabolized during the winemaking, during the fermentation. And besides, the lees are reductive. The, the lees protect the wine from oxidation. But when we disgorge the bottle, we necessarily open it and let some oxygen in, which will create different conditions for a certain time. That certain time, in my mind, is somewhere between one and two years, which is the time for the wine to completely digest the oxygen and combine it with its other components. After that is when the wine becomes stable again, and I think is one of the good moments to drink it. That's the first window. The second window is when the wine has really aged, and has developed into something more mature, which with Claude de Guas, I think, is after at least 10 years. So I'd advise people to either drink it around two years after the disgorgement date, which we write on the back label, or cellar it and wait for 10 years. The, uh, the big Claude de Guas lovers that I know, we, we have some fans around the world, tend to keep it for 10 years or more. Do you find it helpful to decant the wines at either of those stages? I think it's helpful to decant a, a champagne that's been aged for a long time on the lees, like Claude de Guas, which is aged for 10 years on the lees, when it's somewhat recently disgorged, because it's still reductive, and decanting with bringing some oxygen and reduce the reduction, if I may say, 
after three or four years or more, I don't think it's necessary to decant it anymore. Do you find that that reduction showcases some nuance inside of, of the weightier wine? Like the profile of the wine is quite weighty, but the, the reduction when it's youthful can kind of shed some cut. Some people like a little reduction in the wine. It can bring in an interesting complexity. Personally, I'm not a big fan of reduction. I like very balanced wines. I want them to be just right, just mature. So that's why I would recommend decantation. Besides Claude de Guas, it is a relatively heavy wine aromatically. It has no oxidation. It has lots of freshness, but it's quite aromatic. And therefore, whereas it be reduced or oxidized, the defect would would be overpronounced because of the uh, of the strong character of the wine. So I like it to be right in the middle with perfect balance. And I think that perfect balance is achieved after one or two years post-disgorgement. Do you see a, a very different expression from Clos de Guas in a cool year versus a warm year? Well, Clos de Guas is made only from a single vineyard, from one place, and therefore there is a stronger vintage effect, which is quite interesting, actually, because you normally don't get that in Champagne. The, the blending process sort of uh, averages out everything. But in a single vineyard, there is the, that, that averaging of things doesn't happen. We put some pride into making a Clos de Guas every time we can. Uh, the last Clos de Guas vintage we did not produce at all is 1987. We've been making Clos de Guas for almost 30 years now, without an exception. There's only one vintage that we did make, but did not release, which is now sitting in the Unotech, and is available as a collectible wine from our Unotech. It's 1994. Uh, but all the other vintages since uh, 1988, uh, were made and and released. And do you think that's a function of it being a warmer site? So in years that are a little less warm, yes, it it's, is the function. It 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 comes from the fact that Claude de Guas is uh, is an exceptional place. I think it deserves to be made into a cuvee every year, just like top Burgundy growth would make a cuvee every year, or top uh, Bordeaux chateaus would release a, a vintage every year. I think Claude de Guas deserves to be treated in much the same way. And one should accept the differences from one vintage to another, and one should accept the fact that not all vintages are exceptional, but the vineyard is exceptional. So even in a lesser vineyard, the result is interesting and, and is quite worthwhile. I was quite surprised at what happened with 2001, which is the last really weak vintage in Champagne. Uh, we made a 2001, only 7,000 bottles, and uh, we sold them in a matter of a few weeks. And I remember when I was when we just released it, we released it together with the 2002 vintage. And at the winery, when visitors came, I made them taste 2001 first, then moved 2002. Uh, but most people thought 2001 was 2002 when they first tasted it. That's how good it was, and still is. I remember the 92 was one of those vintages that you would think before you tasted it that it would probably not be so wonderful and it's, uh, good, it's good wine. 92. Yes, there are vintages like that which are slightly too delicate. 92 is one of them. 99 is also a delicate vintage. More recently, 2004 was a delicate vintage. 2006, which we are just about to release, is also a delicate vintage. 
Um, and very often what happens is that we think it may lack a little character because it's delicate, but then because of the very fact that it's delicate, it also ages very well and develops very well. So just, these vintages just need time and they age extremely well because there's nothing in them that can go wrong. So do you find yourself modulating the amount of time on the leaves for some of the cooler vintages? Well, one of the things that I did and that I keep doing since I arrived is not changing our ways ever. Um, if we do change anything, it's because we think our process can be bettered a little bit, and then we will change things across the board and we will stick to it. But we don't adjust according to the vintage we apply the same methods. The only thing that we adjust is more or less malolactic fermentation because we don't want to um, um, adjust acidity by acidifying or deacidifying, which are both authorized in Champagne, but which I think are not you know, logical methods, but rather crimes to the wine. So we prefer to uh, use n the natural fermentation options that are open to us. And how do you find the texture of Clos de Guas to change in a hot year versus a cooler year? Do you find it to be a white? I, I tend to um, uh, classify Clos de Guas into two main categories, the lean Clos de Guas and the fat Clos de Guas. Fat Clos de Guas generally coming from riper years and having a little more glycerol sometimes and the leaner years being the more delicate years, and generally having rather fruity aromas in the sense of uh, red fruit, of uh, wild berries, uh, whereas the fat, de Guas from the riper years, will have more of what I call the yellow or orange fruit, peach, apricot, mango, sometimes even tropical aromas. The lighter vintages like 92, 99, are the lean vintages, but paradoxically, some of the ripe vintages are sometimes lean. Uh, 2002, for instance, is in my mind lean. It doesn't have any fatness to it, has very little glycerol. Some of the lesser vintages are, are sometimes fat, like 91. 91, which probably had a little botrytis, is slightly fat and is beautiful, has beautiful texture. That's probably an unusual thing to get in a south-facing site like you have, Botrytis. Well, Botrytis is, uh, is part of Champagne. It's one of the big risks that we run in Champagne because we are a northerly and wet climate. The small miracle of Champagne is that we get drier and warmer conditions uh, during the three summer months. Otherwise, we just couldn't make wine. Um, but sometimes it just goes wrong. Sometimes the summer gets rainy, and then we have problems with Botrytis. Of course, we handle botrytis in as much as we can, but sometimes some of it is left. How often would you say that that happens? I'd say we have some degree of uh, botrytis every other year. Really? That much? Wow. And then our view about botrytis at Filippona is to sort it out completely. Uh, controlling botrytis chemically is impossible and would involve too much spraying, so we don't do it but we'd rather uh, sort the healthy grapes at the time of harvesting in the vineyard. Anything that has more than three or four grains, three or four berries affected by botrytis goes to the ground. The other grapes can go in the basket. 
So you said you're not using any second pressings anymore, but what is the press? I mean, what is the press like? At our own press house, we use two modern pneumatic presses. The whole process is oriented towards having as pure a juice as possible. That's why we use only the first pressing, because we want as pure a juice as possible. There's a first decantation when the must, the juice, pours. Then we do a second decantation to clarify the must for 12 to 18 hours before fermentation. Then, of course, there's the alcoholic fermentation. And possibly when we perform it, the malolytic fermentation, right after that. And when the fermentations are finished, whether we make one alcoholic or two alcoholic and malolactic, we rack the wine. Then prior to bottling, we will cold stabilize the wine, which will also decant the wine another time. And there will be a last decantation inside the bottle during all the aging with the lees in it. Uh, so that in the end, uh, champagne wine is uh, as clear as can be without having to filter. What is your approach to the rosés? At Filippona, we blend our rosés. That's something I initiated when I arrived and uh, something I'm still fine-tuning. Instead of blending white champagne with a little red champagne, like most people do, we make two wines from the same batch of, uh, of uh, black Pinot Noir, or red Pinot Noir, one concentrated red wine, and one bled rosé, one rosé de saignée, which we will also use when blending rosé. So our rosés are blended three ways. They're blended from red, rosé, and white. And there's one of our uh, cuvées that's blended only from rosé de Seignier and white, and that's our Claude Guas rosé. Uh, Claude Guas rosé, which we don't want to have much color, and which we want to be able to age for a very long time, is blended only from white and rosé, not from white and red. And is that also ten years on the lease, the Claude Guas? That's also ten years on the lease. And how do you find that expression to differ from the standard Claude Guas? We started making Claude de Guas Rosé with the um, 99 vintage, and I was immediately surprised at the difference, because it is quite different. And I think the difference comes from the tannins. Even though we call it juste rosé, hardly rosé, uh, the fact that there is some color in it uh, implicate that there is also tannins. There are also some tannins in the wine. And when the tannins combine with the acidity uh, from a tasting point of view, from an organolectic point of view, there's a little more aggressivity in the wine and it makes it even fresher and even bigger and even longer. And uh, contrary to what I thought in the beginning, it actually preserves the fruit longer. So in theory, it could taste younger for a longer period of time in the bottle. Well, we only started in 99, so it is, it's a little early to, to say. We don't have enough background to really say that, but um, the same thing that usually happens with white Claude de Guas is also happening with the rosé. Some of the Claude de Guas that taste a little heavy in the beginning, that taste very ripe in the beginning when it's still very fruity in the early stages, tend to become more mineral and, and fresher after 15 or 20 years. And I was recently tasting again some of the 2000 rosé 
which I hadn't tasted in a while. So it's now 15 years. And it's just tasting much fresher now than it did five years ago when we released it. So after time, the fruit goes down and the site, the chalk of the site comes the, up. The, fr the fruit goes down or transforms into something else. And what really shows through is the structure of the wine. And I feel like in that period of time that you've been there, the sensation of freshness has taken hold more and more with the wines, as far as I can tell. And why do you think that might be? Well, it's very simply because I like it. It's my view. It's the way I want the wines to be. So we've been working on it so that I haven't changed the wines. I, I haven't worked against the terroir. I've, I've tried to enhance the elements that in my mind were typical of the wine and had to be enhanced. And that chalky freshness is, is, is one of the key elements that need to be enhanced. How did you go about emphasizing that? Well, non-oxidative uh, winemaking, adding tannins to the wine. Uh, of course, with the rosé, it's easy to understand that it comes from the color. But in the whites, it comes from the barrels. We, we've been using more and more oak barrels. And that creates a different texture. We use what I call young barrels. Uh, we use very little new oak, although sometimes we have to introduce new oak. But the average age of our barrels is four to five years. At this stage, they are still tannic, and the tannins are still antioxidative. But they allow some complexity because the air yeah, breathes through the pores of the wood. So we can create complexity without losing the freshness because the tannins are still antioxidative. And the tannins, after four or five years, are softer. So they bring a nice velvety texture in the cheeks. That is the, the sensation that, that you can have about the structure of the wine. The structure of the wine is not just in the cheeks, but it is revealed in the cheeks when you feel the velvety texture from, uh, from the winemaking in oak. So speaking of the winemaking, you revitalized the original winemaking area in the early 2000s. What shape did that take? Well, the most important part of uh, rebuilding the winery was to prevent premature oxidation and to preserve freshness. So we got rid of the old vats. We had old enameled uh, steel vats with no temperature control. We also had some um, glass-walled concrete vats with no temperature control. And we had a few stainless steel vats with bad temperature control. So the, the main investment was uh, twofold. On one hand, introducing oak. On the other hand, introducing good stainless steel with proper temperature control. Do you feel that's brought more precision to the wines, the temperature yes, control? Yes, of course. Of course, yes. But the wines are, are a lot cleaner. You've been there for 15 years, but have you noticed any effect of climate change during that period of time? I understand it's a fairly short period of time. Well, before I worked at Philippe and I, I also worked for 15 years at Moutet Chandon. And my father had been a winemaker in Champagne 30 or 40 years before me. So we do have a, a lot of background and background information and it's being observed by everybody in Champagne. So there has been a change obviously. Um, right now it's for better. It means that 
instead of having only one or two exceptional vintages in the decade, we now have uh, four or five. Because Champagne is a cool place. Being slightly hotter is actually good news. Uh, now, what we don't know it's, is what happens when it really becomes hot, when it changes from being a cool climate vineyard to being a warm climate vineyard or moderate climate vineyard. If Champagne has the same climate as Burgundy, what happens? Well, we don't really know. Although Claude de Guas may give you an indication. In, in the good terroirs, and with proper winemaking, hotter conditions can be managed very well and can yield excellent wines. But you will need good terroirs and you will need good winemaking. And when you want to express the intensity of Claude de Guas in the bottle, what atmospheric pressure do you bottle at? Is that a higher pressure or a lower pressure? Do you want it to seem more vinous or more fresh? We use 25 grams of sugar per liter, which is one gram higher than is usually recommended. We do that because it ages longer, very simply. And uh, because of the long aging, we lose a little pressure. So we think it's better to start with a little more pressure. You expect that people are going to be aging this wine for a long period of well, time. We, we do. Right. right. We, we release it after 10 years instead of uh, right. three or four for a non-vintage or five or six for a vintage. So when you taste it before you release it, what's notable to you? How do you know it's not ready? I mean, what does it taste like at five years, six years? It tastes very closed and reduced. Every time we... we start tasting a wine prior to releasing it, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed because it is always not ready. Because it cannot be ready. It can only be ready after it's been disgorged. But when we disgorge it, it's always too early. So what we normally do is that we, when the wine reaches six or seven years, we start disgorging samples and we let them sit for one or two years. And that's the only way we can really approach what the wine will taste like when it's ready. But even then, I'm, I'm always a little bit disappointed when we start a, a new relationship. It's like a new girlfriend you get. It takes a little time to get used to uh, different ways of behaving. Flippinot seems like a much smaller operation than Moet and Chandon, you know, in many senses. What is the strength of running a smaller program, a smaller house? Being hands-on seeing the results of what you do, doing your own things, really. Being in control, not having to report on everything we do, you do, not having to wait for a decision to be taken. Looking back at it, knowing what I've done and um, finding about some of the success we've had with the changes, I tend to think that we could have done that faster very early stages, but then we didn't know at the time. I didn't know at the time. I could only do these progressive changes because of the learning process. Because I had to experience several vintages to understand what to do. So I only know that I could have done things faster because I didn't do things faster. <laughs> the, the main changes that we did were done across a period of... Uh, five or six years, and we're seeing the results now. They were not done immediately. It took a little time to understand what to do. 
And what do you see as the changes in the next 15 years? I think we know our style now. It's quite clear. Now it's all about fine-tuning, and it's also about better vineyard management, and perhaps increasing some of the changes that we've done. For instance, we are buying more wood to uh, ferment more wine in oak and increase the proportion that fermented in oak. It will never be everything because we still like to blend wine fermented in oak and wine fermented in stainless steel uh, because we want to retain the freshness that we get from fermenting without oak. That's one of the moves. With the rise of grower champagnes in the region, what is the niche of Philippe Onat? Philippe Onat is a small house. Uh, we are a négociant, which means that we also buy grapes. We grow our own grapes, and we grow our grapes from a very specific area. So in a way, we are a grower. We are a grower, but we are also more than a grower because we are bigger than a grower, and we buy grapes from other growers. Starting this year with the past vintage, we decided to go into a deeper relationship with some of our growers, and we've started cooperating uh, in a much deeper way in the vineyard. Because we now want to know exactly where the grapes come from, how they're grown. We want to decide that together. We want to see the vineyard just before it's harvested. We want to participate in the harvest. And I've been proposing to some of the growers that are open to that, which is not usual in Champagne, to do it with me and to be paid a little more money for that work. And uh, I already have several candidates that will start cooperating with us and delivering grapes to us in much the same way as they would grow them for themselves if they were making their own wine. And actually, many of these growers are making their own wine. And that's why they understand. They understand that if they pay a lot of attention to the grapes they grow for themselves, then they should pay the same attention to the grapes they grow for me because I pay a lot of attention to quality. And it deserves to be uh, compensated for, which we have offered. Charles Philippe not never decided that he wanted to go into wine, but he's delved further and further into it over time. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Charles Philippe not of Philippe not in Champagne. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Peter Lee's champagne guide.net 
was a key resource for me when I was preparing for this interview. If you're interested in Champagne, I highly recommend that you check it out. It is the best resource I know about Champagne in English today. Again, champagneguide.net from Peter Lehm.